0: How She Does It is proudly supported by iShares, a global leader in ETFs. With over 1,250 products worldwide, iShares is dedicated to providing you with cutting-edge investment solutions for an ever-changing market. Let your best investor out, take control of your investments, and learn more about the importance of incorporating ETFs into your investment strategy. Visit iShares.com. Hi everyone, thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It, where we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. Today it's that last item, power, that we're going to be discussing. Because the truth is, women have always had it. Every day we successfully juggle our careers, social lives, and families, and increasingly women are the breadwinners in their relationship. We're also landing more C-suite roles than ever. Today, there are 53 women leading Fortune 500 companies. That's up from literally four women in the year 2000. So while that's certainly progress at more than 10 plus percent of women at the helm, it's still only 10 plus percent, and we are 50 plus percent of the population. At the same time, we also have to acknowledge that the definition of the word power can be vastly different when we compare the sexes. What does a woman in power want and need? Versus a man in power? And when you think of a powerful woman versus a powerful man, what images does your mind conjure? Think about that for a second while I introduce today's guests who say that it's time we redefine the word power for a new generation. Katty Kay and Claire Shipman are the authors of the new book, The Power Code More Joy, Less Ego, Maximum Impact for Women and Everyone. Katty and Claire are longtime journalists. And this is actually the fifth book they have co-authored. Both women have covered the White House, multiple presidential elections, financial collapses, and the wars in Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq. They are advocates for change when it comes to issues vital to women and developing a much needed confidence movement for women of all ages. Claire and Caddy, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Karen, thank you for having us. It's our pleasure.
0: Just so our listeners know, Catty is the Brit and Claire is the not-Brit. So I want to dive right in and get to the heart of your new book. But first, I just want to ask you one question. How did you guys end up writing for, and I guess the fifth
1: book, how did you come together and begin this journey of writing books together? Well, we started back in 2007 when Claire and I both had careers anchoring in television. And we had young children and we thought to ourselves, this is crazy. You know, we're, we want to carry on working. We have these great educations, but it's just not viable as it is. Uh, we just felt we kept on hitting that brick wall of kids versus career and we didn't want to have to make that choice. So we started a book that was called Womenomics that originally was going to be our look at alternative ways of working, kind of alternative work schedules and actually ended up becoming a book about the value of women in the workforce. We uncovered some of the very first studies on literally the amount that women contribute to companies' bottom lines, and the studies that show that the more women you have in senior leadership, the more profits your company makes. So it became a kind of book about the value of women in the workforce. And also, if you allow people generally more flexibility, you actually increase productivity, which when we wrote it back in 2008 was sort of shocking. And I think in the light of COVID and the way we all work now, everyone's like, yeah, Of course, this is possible and doable, and women are all doing it. So it was a a very prescient book, perhaps a little ahead of its time. But that was the first book we wrote. And then we went on to a big exploration of confidence, first confidence in women and then confidence in girls. And now we've tackled this new big subject. Okay, so the subject is power. So let's get right to it. So you say
0: that women need a new form of power. We already have it, but we just need to tap into it. Can you explain how exactly is this playing out in the world today?
2: What we found is that and this we discovered at the very beginning as we embarked on this study of power, we thought we would reach out to some academics, try to figure out what it is and move on, just get a definition. And what we found is that there's not even real agreement on the definition and there's an emerging sense that power could be more expansive than it is. And that new movement is really being led by the number of women who are academics who are studying power. So power in the last couple of hundred years has been quite hierarchical and has been defined largely as power over. It's something that has a lot more sort of ego tied up in it. It's something that has a lot more kind of focus on authority and often, in a sense, power for power's sake, right? And hierarchy, what we found for women is there's an added element, which is a why, power to. So we talk a lot in the book about power over versus power to. Women are much more motivated by To what end? Why are we doing this? What are we going to achieve? And so what we found is that this is the way women in general, when they have power, wield it. They tend to be less hierarchical, more collaborative, more democratic about the use of power, and they're heavily focused on the why or the mission. But what we also discovered is that in the workplace, although women have spent centuries trying to mold ourselves into this other version of power, we do it Well, in some ways, but the fact that we have these instincts to use power differently leads to this kind of clash at the top. And what we found in this stagnation in terms of women getting to the very top, right, this sort of sense of they're not quite doing it the way we do. And we argue that this is because women don't like the way power is right now, and we tend to use it differently and that a more expansive version would be better for everybody.
0: So I wonder then, do you get into this sort of circular situation of to change the definition of power and the use of power, do women need to be in a position of more historically defined power to make that change?
1: Yeah, we did wrestle with that a little bit. And our aim is very much to get women into positions of power. We want more women running everything. And the stats you pointed out at the beginning are just not okay. Um, And the fact that this year we are celebrating a record with 10% of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies being women, Is so far off where we need to be, not just for women, but for everybody, because when there are more women in positions of power, things run better. Whether it's companies or parliaments or congresses or countries, things just run better. So we do want more women there. And so, in a sense, we want women at the top of things. But it's not either or. I think what we found with the women who have positions of power is that they are doing things differently. So, yes, they've risen to be the first female editor of the. Economist magazine, or the head of the International Monetary Fund, or the first black female CEO of an NBA team. But it's not in a way a choice that you have to make. You don't have to choose to do it outside or inside, because those women who are doing it are already doing it differently. And I think that's what's exciting about this, is it's not just theoretical. This form of power is already in action and is already proving to be incredibly effective and having a big impact.
0: So how do we then expand that number of women, right? As you said, this 10% is, is, okay, it's moving in the right direction, but at this pace, we're never going to get there. (laughs) So let me ask you, for a long time, it was, well, the pipeline needs to fill up of women and that takes time. And I don't know, it seems like time's up kind of for that already. (laughs) So why hasn't that happened? Do women want the power the way it's currently structured?
2: Well, you're exactly right. There's a supply and a demand problem. And I think we've tended to focus on the supply problem, i.e. bias, all the hurdles, the reasons why women aren't moving up as quickly as we could. And the data is kind of stunning when you look at even the first level of promotions, right, at manager level, and the sort of that men tend to be promoted on promise. And for women, it has to be performance, right? From the very beginning, the hurdles start to weed women out, even before women start to take themselves out, right? So there is a supply problem. What also surprised us is the demand problem. There's really interesting research that shows women look at today's power and say, no, thank you, right? We reach a certain level and say, this is in direct conflict with many, many of my other life values, whether it's taking care of community, children, parents, health, all of it. Women tend to have a broader version of life's values than men do. And we see today's power in direct conflict with that. And by the way, the choices we're making in this, we call it our power aversion theory, we're not wrong. There's also a lot of research that shows women who have power are more likely to be stressed out, depressed, anxious. Than men who have power, and then women who don't, right? So we get it, and it's hard, right, to be pioneers in this. But the fact is, we have to make power more appealing to women, and we have to remove the hurdles that keep women who are attempting to move up from getting there. It has to be less hard. And so we focus in the book on both, sort of the big picture of how power might be more appealing, but also how do you start to remove some of these barriers. And we call it sort of how do we engage in everyday power disruptions to start to help ourselves and help other women?
0: So I thought for a while that part of that pressure that women face is somewhat self-inflicted in that if they have a partner, let's say it's a husband, who is actually open to doing their share of the child raising and running the house I know, and my husband was like that, but I felt guilty. Even if he was willing to do it, I felt like I still had to be what I call the number one parent, and that if I weren't the one who knew, oh, she only eats yellow food now for the last few weeks, or whatever it is, that I felt like I wasn't a good parent if I didn't know that, and he did. And so even though I could have laid off some of that responsibility, I still wasn't able to do it. Have you found that at all in your research?
1: Yeah, I think we've found it in our own lives to some extent. What you're describing is kind of perfectionism, which we know women tend to be more prone to. And some of that might come from you, but some of it might come from centuries of pressure that have been put on you to be a certain type of mother. I mean, I had this in my own life when... A few years ago, I started earning more than my husband did. And I became the primary breadwinner in our family. And we had to have some kind of quite difficult conversations about what that meant in terms of chores and travel and and in a way whose schedule had to take kind of a little bit more priority outside of the home. And he really stepped up and went to several parent-teacher conferences that I couldn't make or would do things that I couldn't do. It you know, had all the list of the Parents' names on email and all of that kind of thing. And at one point, the school, I remember this very clearly, the school started. Calling him rather than me if there was a problem at school. It was, he was the primary phone number that they would call. And I remember my reaction being, oh my God, that makes me feel bad. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I'm not being the kind of perfect mother I should be. And I felt a little bit excluded. And then actually I realized, look, hold on a second. This is something to be incredibly proud of. Everything we're doing is trying to get men more involved in caregiving and more involved in chores at home. And therefore, when a man is in that position, we should be celebrating it. And also, we should be celebrating it, I think, publicly. I mean, this whole transition that is taking place in couples where women are starting to earn more than men is very much happening in kind of secret, like it's something to be ashamed of. And I think we have to, as part of this kind of power transition
2: outside of the home, we've got to celebrate a power transition inside the home, too. It's also important to when you're talking about balancing work at home, to recognize this sort of cognitive labor, emotional labor piece, which is that many of us would have partners who would happily pitch in and drop kids off or pick up groceries, but they will execute, right? And it's really important to start to turn over the entire package, right? The entire planning piece from start to finish of things, because that's the brain space that many women use We need it at work. But it's time in the end, right? If we are doing all of that kind of functional focus at home, which is the worrying and the thinking and planning, we do have less time at work. And so I think there's part of it that is about opening that up more to our partners.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I think that division of labor is so important and so one-sided. I always think about it, all right, well, you decide to make a baby. Look at that division of labor. You come together for one night and then you do all the work for the next nine months or however it is. So that doesn't seem fair.
1: When we were looking at this and I had a moment where I kind of thought, oh God, are we just getting too into relationships? And maybe this doesn't really matter. We need to think much more of power outside the homes. And what are we doing? We've never looked at marriages before. So what are we doing wading into that whole emotional territory? And then I had a conversation with a woman who's the United Nations head of planning for women and girls around the world. And we were on a panel together and about halfway into this panel about diversity and inclusion and equity. She suddenly said, listen, there's one word that nobody's talking about and it's care. And until we address care and who is doing the caregiving of elderly parents, of children, of communities, we're never going to have equity. We're never going to get there. We're never going to get more women into power. And I remember one of the researchers saying to us, listen, it might be that it's not bosses holding women back. It could be husbands. And I think we have to be as honest about that as we are about what's happening in workplaces.
0: And how much would you say is women holding women back for whatever reason? They do the calculus and they they don't want to seek that power.
1: We're often asked that question, and we've never come across data suggesting that women are worse bosses to women than men are. And actually, if you look at the statistics on companies that are run by women, they tend to do a better job of promoting women through the ranks, which would suggest actually that women elevate women more than that they hold them down. I think partly it's that when we come across a woman who is not a good ally to us or a good ally to younger women and who maybe has that old-fashioned zero-sum view of power, you know, more for you is less for me. We're sort of so shocked by it that we focus on it and think that's how all women are. But the numbers just don't back that up. And how about women themselves
0: being a the hurdle to themselves? What are the most common reasons that you find they do that and decide to just not seek the power, even if they're quite capable of running whatever organization it might well, be? Well,
2: this research really did surprise us. Women don't like today's power, By and large, I think we find this sort of hierarchical nature of it uncomfortable. There's a sense when we look at power, it's kind of like the P word, like we don't necessarily want to be, quote unquote, bossing people around. Sometimes there's a sense of the use of power and this kind of authority in a negative way. There is research that shows, generally speaking, as people acquire power, they become less empathetic and they become more distant, right? Power tends to have this negative effect often on people as human beings. What is interesting is that women don't have that transformation as often. Researchers have found that women tend to maintain their sense of empathy and connection to the other level of employee, if you will. And so it may be that we then find wielding power in that old school way actually harder. But also, I think, as we said, we do find there's a zero-sum game element in the sense that wielding power the way it's used today often means we have to give up things that are very important to us in our life outside of work, which is as the care piece, as Katty was talking about very often.
0: Right. Is it also, I think women tend to feel or like to lead by consensus that feels more comfortable and men sort of by direction.
1: I think that is true. But we would argue this idea of power to rather than power over as power to effect change, as opposed to I have power over you or over something. Power to effect change comes often from leading by consensus. That many of the women leaders we spoke to yes they were absolutely happy to make decisions and they realized the buck stops with them but they build consensus in their teams and they take the time and the energy and the effort to do that and it's an incredibly effective way of leading actually i mean it's what all of the management books and management courses are now talking about is empathy and vulnerability and taking your team with you as every leader we spoke to male or female said that old fashioned view of i dictate what happens just doesn't fly anymore in organizations we've moved into a different role. And so I think, yes, we have a comfort level with a different type of power, perhaps, but we would argue that's actually a better way of leading.
0: That would seem to me a way that really would dovetail with inspiring the troops, right? And do you find that people who work for women feel more inspired by women, women employees and women leaders?
2: We have anecdotal evidence. There is data that shows that women perform better as leaders Across a variety of metrics, our anecdotal evidence, in terms of the women we interviewed who are in real positions of traditional power, shows that they're doing this differently, and it's a they're bringing change that's really popular. One, the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks, St. Marshall, has is really focused on authenticity at work—a kind of radical authenticity, which is a bring your whole self to work in which she really means it, right? You're having a bad day because you didn't get enough sleep or you have a drug addiction problem. She wants to know about it and she wants the whole team to rally around you and to help. It's certainly not the way I've gone into corporate environments, but it's quite successful. And she's really an evangelist for this notion that You don't have to turn and put on some superhero cape on your way to work and become somebody entirely different. And we're not going to get our best out of our employees that way. That's a very different kind of leadership. Other leaders we've talked to are just much more, as you said, consensus-oriented and almost democratic about losing the hierarchy, listening to people at a variety of levels, sharing credit uh, heavily, and making the leadership less about them as individuals and more about the team. And I guess what we're hoping is that this is a way power can be used. You don't have to think, oh, if I agree to climb the ladder, I'm going to have to execute it this way. Because I think a lot of women do, maybe to your point, Karen, think, I'm not going to be able to execute power the way it needs to be executed in this organization, and I'm not going to be comfortable doing it this other way. And I think what we're trying to say is, we can do it the way we want to do it. It's acceptable now, and people are responding to it. And now we're going to take a quick
0: break. Are you ready to find a better way to invest? iShares, the global leader in ETFs, can help you take control of your portfolio and stay on top of your financial future. In a time marked by economic uncertainty, iShares helps investors unleash their potential with timely market insights from its investment strategy teams to help individuals make sense of current markets. No matter what the state of the world, you can pursue your financial goals. Let your best investor out. Visit iShares.com to explore investment insights and solutions. And we're back. I wonder if some of those things you're talking about, giving credit, for example, which I always thought is a tremendously powerful tool that's pretty inexpensive to use and very helpful, do you find that some of the maybe more traditional seeming men see the value in this as a way to lead, that they might want to lead differently as well?
1: I think we have found that we are in a moment of extraordinary change. And we've had huge social and medical upheavals over the last 10 years or so, we've had the Me Too movement, we've had Black Lives Matter, we've had COVID and the changes that all of that has brought to ideas of equity, inclusion, the way we work, I mean, literally the way and where we work. So it's a moment where a lot is up for change. And I think a lot of leaders, male and female, are open. And we certainly we spoke to many in different countries who are open to the idea that things can be done differently and must be done differently if they are ever going to move the needles on those numbers we spoke about at the beginning. And I wish I could say to you that there's one silver bullet. If every organization did this one thing or if every person did this one thing, it would all radically change. It's not that simple, but it's a bit like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. There are lots of different things that go into doing this and everybody can play a role, whether they have power, whether they don't have power. And the book has a lot of theory and data and we interview neuroscientists and psychologists, but we also boil it down into very practical tips that people can do every day to be part of this change. Whether it is you're in a meeting and somebody is speaking over your female colleague, say something as simple as let her finish or let me finish. Whether it is sharing power, making a point of giving credit to others, showing that in your view and in your organisation, power is not a zero-sum game. It's not a game. It's not a finite commodity. But by giving public credit to people, uh, by, in performance reviews, making sure that you're not falling into the trap of calling men competent and women compassionate, but are recognising both of those qualities in all of your employees. I think so there are sort of granular things that everybody can do They can change the way they think about power. They can see that power can look differently. They can literally prime their own brains to feel more powerful going into promotion conversations or pay raise conversations or, you know, important meetings. So there are little things that everybody can do. And if we all do those things and take a part in building this jigsaw puzzle, then I think we can really redraw the picture of power. So I
0: wonder, do you feel powerful or do you feel like you are working to
2: feel powerful? Certainly writing this book has been enlightening for me. And I think at the end of it, I recognize that I'm powerful. It's been eye-opening for me in a lot of ways, because I think our whole trajectory with writing books about women in leadership, women in confidence, and now women in power, it's a variation on the same theme in a way. At every moment, it's a recognition that It's not women that need to change. The way we do things naturally actually works. And we've always been told, whether it's about how to lead or how to do this or the hours we have to work, that somehow we have to mold ourselves. And I think it's the same way with power. It's that we can, by listening, building consensus, making decisions, not necessarily hogging all of the airtime, not necessarily seeming self-important, we can still have power and use power and affect a lot of change. But I think recognizing that that's power has been eye-opening for me because it's not what traditional madman style power looks like. So that's a long answer to say it's been a process, but yes, I feel powerful.
1: How about you, Katie? I remember, Claire, when we started writing this book, I remember you saying to me, I don't really have power, but I have status. And actually, it's interesting to hear you say that actually you recognize that you do have power. I think one of the things that made me realize I have power was some of the work we did around neuroscience and the impact of power on our brains. And one of the academics we spoke to who said that power allows you to be more authentic. So power actually allows people to act more in the way that their instincts are driving them. Now, that can be a negative thing when it's power in the hands of somebody with malicious intent, But it also can be an incredibly positive thing when it's in the hands of somebody with kind of good intent, which we would argue many women leaders are. But in my particular case, I think what it has allowed me to do is say yes to the things that I believe in and no quite clearly to the things that I don't want to do. And I don't mean whether it's a meeting or a call or writing a new chapter of the book. I mean, no to things that don't align with my values. And having power has allowed me to do that. And I think that's an incredibly appealing prospect to women who for centuries have had to kind of bend and twist themselves into other people's view of what they should be. But the idea that power allows for authenticity, uh, I see now that I do act in a way that is authentic to me. And that's very satisfying.
0: So let me just touch on some of your earlier work about risk-taking. And I'll tell you what I've found and tell me if you see that often or, or what, which is something in the hedge fund business. And I asked this male friend of mine, why do you have no women on your team? And he said, I don't have any women, not because they're not smarter. They're plenty smart smart enough or way smarter than who I've got. But when one of my analysts comes to present an idea for us to make an investment in, the guy comes in, he's going to tell me how much money we're going to make on this. And the woman comes in and she tells me all the things that can go wrong with this investment. He said, so I'm kind of a sucker for the upside every time. And I appreciated his candor, even though it sounds terrible, but then it made me think, The women, by presenting all the things that can go wrong, one, shows they've done a lot of work and can look at all sides of it, but two, also seems like a way of kind of laying off the risk to the portfolio manager, who ultimately is the one who has to say yes. And so if they don't take the risk, if they don't present it with the upside, that's a very risky strategy, actually. Seemingly risk-averse, but it's actually very risky. And I wonder if you have found that or if that's changing at all.
1: I don't know if he's seen the data that shows, actually, this is data by Goldman Sachs that shows that hedge funds run by women outperform those run by men. And perhaps he would do better to read that data than go on his gut instinct. And I think there's a role for both, clearly in financial services, there is a role for somebody who is looking six months out and a role for somebody who's looking six days out and taking risks and placing bets accordingly. And it always reminds me of what Christine Lagarde, the first female head of the IMF, used to say around 2008 in the financial crash that if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Brothers and sisters, perhaps we wouldn't have jumped off that cliff quite so quickly. And she said specifically Lehman Brothers and sisters. She didn't say Lehman sisters. And I think there is a role. I mean, the the reason that study after study shows that diversity of experience, thought, attitude, background, race, gender makes for better business decisions is because it is diversity. And we want all of that in making business decisions. And there's a great algorithm done by Professor Page at the University of Michigan that literally shows that, that you give a complex business decision to a group of a mixed gender group, and the mixed gender group will always come up with a better solution than the group of just men, whatever their qualifications. And I think that's what's worth bearing in mind. I mean, there may be that women are Take a different type of risk or have a different tolerance for risk or are making longer term bets, which seems to be the case in the financial services sector, than men are. And there's probably actually a role for both of those things.
0: That's important, the piece of needing both perspectives or many perspectives that I think is starting to be considered absolutely truth. So I know you each have children and you each have at least one daughter. And I wonder if you could tell me from your
2: vantage point, Do you think their generation is different? I think that generation, in my observation, is um, a lot savvier about the reality of the world. Certainly, it's a more anxious generation in some or many ways. I've been struck by some of the younger women we've talked to, under 25, for example, who Make very specific plans about the kind of job they want to have, the sort of flexibility they want to be afforded by age 30 so that they can have children, and the expectation that they will still be doing the bulk of the childcare and housekeeping at home, which kind of stuns me. And I want to rail against that on their behalf. But it's funny, less different, I think, than I would have thought, more confident, more assumptive that they can do anything they want to do. But I think much more overtly aware of life choices than I was, and they're willing to make them.
1: One way in which perhaps the next generation is not so different, and this is looking at boys rather than girls, I have two boys and two girls, is that we now have a generation of young women who have been told they can be anything. They can be astronauts and physicists and presidents and CEOs and prime ministers. And actually, they have a whole range of options that are open to them. They can work full-time and they can work part-time and they can work not at all. They could be full-time mothers. And all of that is socially acceptable. We never hear people say to their sons, it will be great. You can be a full-time stay-at-home dad. And that option is not really open yet to today's generation of young men. They've grown up with mothers working and they've grown up with dads who are somewhat more involved, but the numbers of stay-at-home dads who are staying at home full-time to care for their kids has barely shifted in the last 30 years. And I think it's because the message that we are giving our sons perhaps hasn't changed as much as the message that we're giving our daughters.
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Right. There's still this stigma about a work-from-home father or the father- Being the main caretaker. So, that I guess is in some way a luxury for women who want to choose that role and a barrier for men.
2: I think what is sad and hard is the notion that any of us as human beings really have to stay in one lane or the other. And we talk to a lot of men who, one of the messages of our book is we need to be empathetic with men. This isn't necessarily about viewing men as trying to cling on to power. Though they may be, that's sort of a natural phenomenon, right? And they don't have many other places to turn because when they do try to do things differently, they're severely judged by their own spouses, by society. And I think until we can balance this sort of emotional caregiving part of the labor in our society, right? It has to be balanced, it has to be valued and shared. We're going to be stuck with this kind of two-lane system where it's really hard to do it all. Men have to, I think our work is on men and boys, frankly.
0: I think your point about men and boys is an excellent one. I have two sets of twins. Each is a boy and a girl. And so it's a scientific experiment. And they do think about their futures differently and what's acceptable to them, regardless of the message that I think I'm giving them. But Kat, brings me to one of your earlier points about the part where you were the primary breadwinner. Did that make both of you uncomfortable?
1: I think we fell into the position without really talking about it. And I think that's what's happening in a lot of couples is that it's like this veil of secrecy. And yes, I think it did make us a bit uncomfortable almost in a practical way because suddenly our roles slightly shifted and we had to have these quite hard conversations about, look, roles have changed a little bit in this relationship now and i notice i mean i've really become conscious of it and i see it in the data i mean this extraordinary data about the fact that in couples where the wife earns more in america they lie about it on the us census form it's just stunning and it's not just the wife lying about it it's the husband and the wife are both lying to make it look like the husband earns more because they want to project to society that they have a sort of more traditional marriage And I think that gets to how stubborn this is, how persistent it is. I mean, how many times do you go out for dinner to couples and whether the wife is earning more or the husband is earning more, it's nearly always the man who produces the credit card at the end to pay the bill. I mean, actually, it's always the man that is given the bill in a situation like that. And there's sort of little things that all of these assumptions about who earns more and therefore who should earn more. And I remember the man we interviewed who said who had quit his job and his wife then became the primary breadwinner, who said he went around with this voice in his head telling him that he had failed at the one thing he was supposed to succeed at – And I realised how incredibly sad that is. I mean, imagine having your options are so limited that there is one thing you are supposed to succeed at and it's earning the most money in your family. I mean, it's just, it's so limiting. And I think my husband and I did struggle with it at the beginning. He's now much more open about it and I'm much more open about it. And I think that's the shift too, is that he would realise that the fact that the school calls him, the fact that he is the one that does parent-teacher conference, the fact that he is the one that will pick my daughter up from boarding school when her term ends that's actually a blessing for him. And it's something certainly his father would never have had. I mean, you know, his father didn't know what a play date was if it had hit him on the head. He was born in 1914. So I think he would also say that there's been a lot of upside for him in terms of his relationship with his children.
0: You're right, though. It is sad more broadly that a man who decides overtly decides to be the homemaker, the caregiver. It's sort of penalized. Has a
1: lot of explaining to do. And that's what really needs to change. And that has to change if women are going to get into more positions of power. All right.
0: Here's a philosophical one for you. Power and joy sometimes seem at opposite ends of the spectrum to me. And what's fresh in my mind is the season of succession. So for years, we watched all three siblings in are just vying for the ultimate power controlling the family, and none of them ever seem particularly joyful. But you argue that power can be joyful. So can you explain that? How do those two things coexist?
1: Yes, you're right. We did spend a lot of time arguing about whether we should have the word joy in the subtitle. And we realize that they sound like things that don't necessarily go together. And we don't mean the kind of scented candles walk on the beach type of joy. But there is, we have found from the female leaders, particularly who we interviewed, who are exercising power in this new and different way, there is a profound sense of satisfaction, and we would call it joy, that comes from having an impact on your community and making, whether it's your family or your business or your country, making it a better place for people, that is a hugely joyful experience. And we do think that if women can be shown that side of power, the things that the potential and the possibilities, there's joy in being able to be authentic. I mean, we've spent so long not being authentic that there is a joy from taking action and being authentic. And I think if we can show women that aspect of power, it again gets over the power aversion theory and gets them to realize that power can be something that they can have, they already do wield, and that they can celebrate and go for. Katty, I hope to one day be in a world where it's all
0: joyful, content, inspirational leaders. And it would be very nice if 50-ish percent of those leaders were women. Okay. I'd love to close out our interview before the lightning round with some advice our listeners can take with them into their next job interview or presentation or another place where you really need to channel power. So, Claire, what's your best advice for walking into those rooms feeling confident and powerful?
2: Actually, it was really exciting when we started talking to neuroscientists and psychologists who are studying basically the science of power, we found there are some things that are really actionable for us in terms of giving us a powerful mindset. And it's, it has to do with priming our brains for power. When scientists are trying to study power, they sit their volunteers down and they have them write down for five minutes their memory of an experience when they have felt powerful, when they have made a positive difference in the world when they've made a change, when they've had an influence. It's important that you do this, by the way, with handwriting because that's more powerful in our brains than typing. So next time you have a big interview or meeting, take five minutes, write down your memory, your actual memory of a time when you've had that experience and you are set up to project power and to feel more powerful and more confident The studies that they've done on this, they studied real people having real job interviews, and those who'd been primed for power got the jobs. I mean, it's really extraordinary. They were much more likely to be successful candidates. And they also found that even two to three weeks later, the priming still had an impact. So if you were even to do this sort of exercise once a week, it can be quite powerful for our brains. That is a fantastic answer to that question.
0: Here's something so tangible, not so difficult, and it works. Excellent answer. And now we're going to take a quick break.
3: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And we're back. Okay, so lightning round. You may know this best as would you rather. So the only challenge is that you can't think about the answer. You just have to say whatever comes to your mind. Okay. Here we go. Optimist or pessimist? Optimist. Optimist. Money or power? Power. Power. Okay. The Washington Post or The New York Times?
2: The Washington Post. I know. The Washington Post, too. It's gotten so good. (laughs) Okay. The next few, because you're both journalists.
0: Segwaying off that. Covering a war or covering a presidential election? Covering a presidential election covering a war. Okay. Which is better, having exclusive access to a high-profile celebrity or to uncover a major corporate
1: scandal? A major corporate scandal.
2: Yeah. Scandal. Definitely.
0: Okay. Go viral with an article read by millions or win a prestigious media award?
1: Probably actually go viral with an article read by millions because I think, again, that's how you affect change by reaching large numbers of people hardback paperback or kindle hardback or paperback
2: oh i'm all kindle all the way i love my kindle okay
0: fiction or nonfiction? fiction 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 drive or be driven drive drive that's a power thing it's a
1: control thing
0: what it's is a control it? thing
1: drives me crazy when my husband drives and does hasn't
2: thought which is the quickest route Oh, interesting.
0: I find driving relaxing. Ah, okay. Run a country or run a business?
1: Run a country, I think. Yeah, run a country. Okay.
0: Have a terrible boss and a good job or a good boss and a terrible job?
1: Oh my lord. (laughs) What an awful, what a Faustian bargain. (laughs) Thank you, Catherine, our producer, for that. That is just the most terrible
2: choice. But, Caddy, haven't we both have both of those situations? (laughs) We've been on both sides of that.
1: Probably in the end, I would go with the terrible boss and the good job and hope that the terrible boss suddenly got fired.
2: Right, exactly, (laughs) that we could figure out the terrible boss. I agree.
1: Okay,
0: two-parter for each of you what's the best investment you've ever made and what's the worst investment?
1: And that term investment is very broad. It could be anything. The best investment I've ever made is having four children. That's not a doubt in my mind. The worst investment I've ever made...
0: I'm afraid you're going to say having four children.
1: (laughs) Yes. I was probably going on The Colbert Show and saying that I had four children and only one job so I could lose one of the children. That might have
2: been a very bad investment. (laughs) I think, yes, family, children is the best investment I've made in terms of time. And worst investment, I think, was spending too much time listening to bad bosses who wanted to change my style approach. It's always to do with time, right? It's sort of, gosh, I wish I hadn't wasted all that time.
0: Excellent answer. All right. Thank you so much. Katty and Claire, I'm really happy to meet you, first of all, and
2: I'm really excited by your work and onward. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for having us on. Thank you
0: so much for joining me today on How She Does It. Thank you so much to Claire Shipman and Katty Kay for sharing how we can begin to redefine power as women. When you have a moment, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper, and our show comes to you through megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward.